Episode 33 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today, we are going to be starting a new series um, on this podcast where we take an in-depth look at a fictional property and we dissect the story beats. I don't know if we have a jazzy name for the series yet. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll think <laughs> of one maybe as we go along. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but that's the new series, and we are starting with Star Wars. <laughs> So today we're going to be talking about the movie Star Wars, which has been retitled A New Hope. Um, But before we get into it, I just wanted to mention briefly, if you hear a child crying desperately in the background, that is my daughter. She is in her bedroom and she's crying a little bit right now. So I don't know whether or not the mic will pick it up, but I can certainly hear it. So uh, if you hear a child wailing, she's fine. She's safe. She's warm. She's loved. She's just very unhappy right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it feels a little strange because we've had this two week hiatus because um, Mm -hmm. both Kelly and I have been on vacation um, so it's a little bit hard trying to find our feet <laughs> after that one. Um, but Star Wars is something that I personally love and I feel like I'm pretty comfortable talking about from actually both a fan and a story perspective. Um, so let us talk uh, briefly about Star Wars as a fictional property, um, and more than just a fictional property, a cultural property, because... I think it's sort of been in everyone's cultural consciousness for a long time, even if you've never actually seen it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was definitely true for me. Um, So, I mean, I probably, I probably watched Star Wars when I was really, really little, like on TV or something, like when it was, I don't know, airing on like TBS or something. Um, But for me, I really got into Star Wars when I was 11. um, And the special edition 20th anniversary had been re-released into the movie theaters. And that was kind of the first time I got to experience Star Wars in the theaters. And being 11 years old, I was like kind of like the right age to be totally obsessed with Were you with it. 11 when that was re-released? Mm-hmm. came out in 97. How, how old are you now? 30. Okay, so I'm three years older than you. Fourteen. I thought I was older when I, because I saw one of the, I saw Empire Strikes Back, I think, when I was, when it came out in theaters. Um, and I knew I was in high school. Apparently I was a freshman. I thought I was older than that, but oh well. Uh, yeah. But anyway, so <laughs> that's kind of my history with it. I've always fallen in love with it. I've, I've been a fan for a very long time. I even read all the extended, not all, it's impossible to read all of the extended universe (laughs) novels that are now no longer canon and now called Star Wars Legends. Um, But regardless, that's kind of my history with it. So then Kelly, why don't you talk about how you finally got around, I guess, to sitting down and watching it? 
Mm-hmm. So yeah, so like I said, I'd seen one of them, and I'm to this day I'm not 100% certain which one it was that I saw in theaters for the re-release. I... I, it may have been something that was like on TV in the background or something, but I'd never seen a full movie all the way through, really. Uh, I know I saw The Phantom Menace at a friend's house and wasn't really paying attention to it. Stars, Star Wars was something that I did not grow up with. I knew a lot about it because it's such a cultural touchstone and it's so well known and, and just part of our, you know, just part of the pop culture fabric that I knew a lot about it. I knew the basic plot points. I knew a lot of famous quotes, um, but I had never actually seen them until last year, this past winter, actually. Um, yeah, so it was 2016. It was this past winter. And JJ kind of convinced me, like, you have to watch these. And then my husband found out that I'd never watched them either. And so the two of them were like, you got to watch it. You got to watch it. (laughs) So I watched all the movies. And then we finally went to see uh, The Force Awakens in theaters when that came out. So I kind of timed it so that we could watch them all in a run. I did live tweet it at hashtag Padawan Kelly. So if you want to go back and see any of my initial impressions, uh, you can search for that hashtag and find it. But, um, so I watched them all as an adult for the first time and I was not expecting to enjoy them. I did not think they would age well. I thought, you know, they'd be really seventies and really campy. And I expected, horrible. I, I, I expected Leia to be really horrible and poorly written and she's not. And it was like the best revelation of my life that she wasn't. Um, so yeah, so you're like a long time fan and I have only very recently come to it. I would argue that the original trilogy holds up really well, but the prequel trilogy is actually really dated now. <laughs> yeah, it's dated and it's awful. And they're awful. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to those and what the failures of those are. But for now, we'll start on the first movie, which when it was released in 1977 was just called Star Wars. Um, mm-hmm. Even though the, the t- opening title scroll has, you know, a new episode four, New Hope, you know, attached to it. It wasn't actually really called that until The Empire Strikes Back. Um, so they had to append that to the title. Was it originally planned to be a trilogy, or was it originally intended to be a standalone? It's kind of hard to say that in the movie in like movie business. There were three years between each of the original films, so um, and nobody expected Star Wars to do well. And basically, he only made the other two because he was able to, George Lucas was able to finance them out of his own pocket. So the question of whether or not it was always intended to be a trilogy, it's a little bit like publishing if you think about it that way. You know, you make the first (laughs) book in a trilogy standalone, and then, you know, if they like it enough, then you can sell the others. You keep going, yeah. (laughs) Kind of the same principle applies here. Um, And clearly, when it first came out, it was such a runaway success. And that he was able to earn enough money to continue making the rest, uh, the rest of the movies, um, for very interesting reasons that we can talk about a little bit later. But we'll just focus on the story today. Mm-hmm. So, why don't we give a, a brief pitch summary of what Star Wars is? I don't know, Kelly. You want to take a stab at it? No. <laughs> <laughs> This is your wheelhouse, absolutely. Um, well, I consider it kind of your traditional, even though it's set in space, 
um, kind of a traditional fantasy story because it's, he's a young and Luke Skywalker is a young innocent farm boy who discovers he has great powers and a possible great destiny to defeat the authoritarian empire that is oppressing everybody in the galaxy. Pretty simple, I think. And it's a, it's a uh-huh. storyline that you see over and over again, this concept of the chosen one, even though he's never explicitly named such. It's a familiar, it's a familiar trope and figure to us. That's what Harry Potter is. It's what Aang from Avatar The Last Airbender is. You know, the hero, the kind of every, every man hero who ha- is special, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what it is. So that's basically the story. So let's go into what we each found compelling about Star Wars. Mm-hmm. For me... It's it for me. It's actually somewhat hard to separate the visuals from the movie itself, you know, because film does have an added dimension that books do not, which is actors, visuals, you know, special effects, uh, a lot of visual, visceral things that don't necessarily accompany a book. But for me, the sense of adventure and fun was always pinned by really great characters. Mm-hmm. And even though the setting is technically unfamiliar to us because it's a fantasy setting long ago in a galaxy far, far away on several different planets and there are aliens and everything, we have recognizable figures and tropes that we can hold on to that have been in all of fiction and literature. So I mentioned Luke is the chosen one, mm-hmm. but we also have Princess Leia, um, who is your kind of kind of before the idea of the strong female heroine was a strong female heroine. Right. Um, but she's also a princess. <laughs> um, and you have the lovable rogue who is Han Solo. Then you have kind of your comedic relief. You have, uh, C3PO and R2D2. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course you have Darth Vader. And I think I would argue that what makes this movie so great, especially because it appeals to us all on a visceral level, because it's pretty hard to argue with evil when it's embodied as Darth Vader, mm-hmm. who is menacing. He's dressed in all black. He's got a deep voice and like that raspy breathing apparatus. Um, so it's it's a very simple, straightforward narrative. You have our heroes and you have a big bad and it's uncomplicated and enjoyable in that way. So Uh I don't know. What what about you, Kelly? When you first saw this movie, like from beginning to end, what did you think? For me really. And and most of my buy-in and all fiction is usually through the characters. I need to be able to latch onto characters and then that brings me into the story. So the, the characters were really the huge draw for me unexpectedly so. I mean, I didn't, you know, you, you know so much about them and they're so archetypal in a way mm-hmm. that you, you don't, I didn't personally expect to be able to connect to them emotionally or invest in them emotionally. Uh, but I really did. And the other thing, and this is something too, that I'm interested to hear from you on, because this is something that I think of as a, as a JJ specialty, whereas it's like my complete weakness, which is the world building. Mm-hmm. Because it seemed to me that this 
felt like, you know, even though, as you said, it's completely unfamiliar landscape, it did feel like a complete and total world that was lived in. We talk about that sometimes with Harry Potter, that it it feels like a true world that extends beyond, you know, what it is that we see in the books. And I did feel that way about watching the Star Wars movies, that the world felt like a true world. Yes, I didn't mention that, but that is, it's this idea that you, that you can find so many stories in every corner of this universe. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is wonder, that to me was a huge draw as well, because, you know, I was 11 and I went to see this in the theater with, um, this kid that I carpooled to school with who was younger than me. He was in second grade, you know, prime, like star Wars toys, action figures kind of age. But he was a fan of star Wars before we went to go see it. In fact, he's the reason we went, but you know, in the morning on the way to school, after we'd seen the movie, we would play, like we would pretend, play, pretend. And we pretend that we were a pilot, a pilot and gunner. I was the pilot. He was the gunner. Um, you know, that kind of, Ask, like feeling that you can live in the world. We will get to world building when we get to the prequels. <laughs> but thus far in the world of the original trilogy, it's simple. That's what I think is kind of great about it. You know, you have a couple of settings, like it starts on the desert planet. Um, you have a big bad in space and the kind of cold clinical bureau- bureaucratic empire, you have this mystical force that binds everyone together. And really, let's be honest, the force is magic. <laughs> uh-huh. That's it. It's magic. And it doesn't need to be explained any more than that. Um, because what's great about Star Wars, too, is that it's archetypal enough without being cliche. Of course, it's cliche now, but it's archetypal enough that you can fill in some of the you know, things that are left unexplained. Um, cause again, that's the problem we'll get to in the prequel trilogy. Um, and this is a visual element of star Wars that it won't be easy to convey and say in fiction, but it looked lived in mm-hmm. like it's, you know, everything's a little dinged up and, and covered in dirt and, you know, people are dirty and it looks like a world you could live in. And that was, I think, a huge appeal, especially for a young me. I think a huge appeal was like, I can play in this universe. Uh So yeah, I think the world building's pretty good, but I think it's great because it's simple. (laughs) Uh So, okay, then let us talk about, we'll talk about characters first. So what makes each of them compelling, do you think? Is Luke compelling? <laughs> I, I, I think that in a way he is because obviously he's the protagonist. He drives the action. He is the chosen one. Um, he's, he's the least charismatic of the three, I think. And... The other two, both Han and Leia, are so dynamic and so wonderful that I think, for me personally, they tend to pull a lot of the focus. And then I'm just kind of like, oh, and then there's Luke. (laughs) But, 
You could, I mean, is Harry compelling? I do. I know you've brought this up about Harry before, but I do find Harry to be a compelling character, maybe because we're so in his own head, you know, that that POV is so close. One of the things that I remember thinking about Luke when I was first watching this um, that surprised me, because again, I I was a, a newcomer to this material as an adult, is how young he is. Isn't he supposed to be about 19? Yeah, like 18, 19. Beginning? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of that perfect age for this type of story, because you know, he's moving from his ordinary farm life with his aunt and uncle, you know, off into the greater world with a larger destiny. And so that age of being, you know, on the precipice of adulthood is a great age for that character to be. The question of whether or not Luke is compelling is almost less important than whether or not he's relatable. And I think in the instance of Harry Potter and Star Wars, the function of being the everyman, you have Mm -hmm. to be relatable. Relatable doesn't always mean bad. And it doesn't always mean boring. I don't actually think Luke is boring. I do think that in terms of just interesting He's just less interesting than, uh, mm-hmm. or just less interesting to me than kind of the side characters around him. Mm-hmm. But I don't think he's a bad protagonist. Like, he's not dull to the point where I don't care. He's in this, he's in, you know, it takes a while for the other characters to show up. It does. And we'll talk about the structure of this film later because it is actually somewhat interesting. But he is your point of view main character for the first third of the movie before Han and Leia show up. Well, I think Leia's in the very beginning. But you don't know but who she is. But then she's gone for a while, yeah. You just see a glimpse of her, help me, Obi. Well, you don't even hear her say yeah. anything. Um, you just see her stick something in R2 and mm-hmm. then run away and then, you know, get yeah. stunned. But you don't know who she is. You don't know her name. You don't know anything about this, this woman. So right. Luke kind of has not even that he carries much of the beginning either because that's actually the droids um but but the moment you meet luke until you kind of he's the vehicle that starts story i don't think i was bored i don't know i don't know it's hard for me to to think back and to remember what it was about him i think i think for me he is He's fine. I, d- I didn't dislike him. Um, I didn't. I didn't really connect with him until the other characters started to show up and they connected with him. And then, you know, through that, I started to care about him more. I do agree that he is, you know, the vehicle, and I was, I was along for that ride, and and he was kind of taking me through the story. But I didn't. I didn't emotionally invest in him, I guess, specifically. Yeah. Just me. I, I agree. I don't emotionally invest in Luke, but I think it doesn't mean that he's not... It doesn't mean he's a bad character, I think. No, I don't think he is either. I don't think he is either. And theoretically, as a protagonist, he has pretty 
you have a pretty clear idea almost from the start what his trajectory is going to be. He's stuck kind of in this moisture farm, you know, rural backwater, and he wants to leave to fight the rebellion, to join the fight Mm -hmm. against the empire. So you have something for him to to want, right? There's that scene where he's standing in the um, farm watching the two sons of Tatooine set. He's kind of looking Uh off into the distance. And you can kind of read into that, that he's looking elsewhere, that he wants to leave, that he wants to make more of himself. And the movie makes that pretty clear up front, that he wants to leave and do something and, you know, mean more, do greater things or whatever. So he's not bland. I... You know, even though a lot of things happen to him, and I, I don't think it means that he's a passive character either. No, I don't think he's passive. I think he, you know, I think the whole beginning is him being kind of thrust into these circumstances, but then I think he, he quickly shoulders that burden and willingly, you know, walks toward his destiny. Mm-hmm. So then let's talk about the the other two of this main trio. Something about trios mm-hmm. seem to work really well in <laughs> in big uh-huh. fictional properties. But let, let's talk about them in the order they appear. So Han. Mm-hmm. Well, aside from the fact that he's played by Harrison Ford, <laughs> we'll, we'll remove that from the consideration. What is so compelling about Han? Han is the archetype of the lovable rogue, the thief with the heart of gold. You know, it's a very recognizable trope. It's a very popular trope. I love it. (laughs) Um, But I think that there is, you know, something... he's, He's a great contrast to Luke because Luke is kind of this innocent, naive person who's led a very sheltered life. And even though he has these aspirations and wants to join the rebellion and all this stuff, you know, up until the events of the movie, he's led a very sheltered, quiet life on his own. Whereas Han is much more worldly, has much more experience of the world, street smarts, you know, all of that stuff. So it's an interesting, um, it's interesting to see the two of them side by side because they have such different backgrounds. Yeah, I I agree because you have Luke who's innocent, as you said, and idealistic. And then you have Mm -hmm. the very cynical Han who's only in it for the money, who, you know, the scene where people always argue about this, whether or not he shot Greedo first. um, There's a scene in the cantina where he's, he's got a bounty on his head because Han being... Han. Um, he's a smuggler. Han's a smuggler, and being the, the rogue that he is, always has you know somebody that he needs he owes money to. So someone tries to come to collect on that, and it's this green-skinned skin, alien dude named Greedo. And in the original cut of this movie, Han shot Greedo first. But in subsequent releases of this movie, George Lucas didn't like that, because it didn't make Han seem as heroic. So... Greedo then shot Han first, and he just shot back in retaliation. It looks really awkward, by the way. It looks totally obvious. Um, so I'm going with the canon interpretation that Han shot first, <laughs> um, which I like because, again, it makes him this sort of cynical character that ha- he's like, all right, I have to get rid of this guy. 
Otherwise, Java is good on my neck, and you know, I just I need uh-huh. to get out of it. So, you contrasting him to Luke is fantastic, and the way they play off of each other, I think, is really great, especially in that first opening scene where they meet each other in the bar. Mm-hmm. Um, and also when they when they see the Millennium Falcon for the first time, and Luke's just like, "What a piece of junk." <laughs> Um, so yeah, so, so there's Han. Um, what about Princess Leia? I love her. (laughs) (laughs) She is, I had, I had such low expectations for the character of Leia because the sum total of what I knew about her was, you know, Leia in the slave bikini. Um, you know, I knew it was made in the seventies and so that wasn't necessarily a great time for her. (laughs) women in fiction or elsewhere. Um, you know, so I, I really expected her to be your standard damsel in distress there for eye candy only, you know, really just kind of insipid and useless. Um, I had the lowest of low expectations for her and she defies all of them a hundred times over. So she is a princess, but she is also a rebel. She is part of the rebellion. Um, and she is... My favorite thing about Leia is her competence. Mm-hmm. She is always shown to be completely competent and capable. And it, it's never called into question. None of the other characters ever doubt her competence or assume that she doesn't know what she's talking about. Everyone always treats her with deference and respect, not because she's royalty, but because she knows her shit and they know that she knows her shit and it's just wonderful. Yeah. I think the movie frames her really well. It it never sexualizes her. Um, there's kind of this cute exchange, depending on how you look at it, about, um, her being rich, (laughs) you know, and, you know, she's a princess, but it's not a romantic thing. It's not, you know, not in the first movie anyway. Um, and, and also that competence is shown, is shown to us. That's what's so great Uh about Leia. We're not told by other tertiary characters. Oh, she's so great. She's so competent. We're shown this. So I think this is probably a good way to kind of segue into specific story examples and and what this this shows for each of us. So I have seen the movie a bazillion times, so I could probably give you a recap or a blow by blow. But we can just start with the opening crawl of Star Wars, which sets the stage for us that there is a rebellion against the Empire. We don't have any specifics of why it started. It's just there. And that Princess Leia has vital information that could possibly defeat the Empire. And she's on the run from the Empire um, and to try, you know, to try basically protect this information from them. Um, But it doesn't work. Her ship is overtaken in the very first scene and the evil Empire enters her ship. And um, this whole exchange, by the way, is... Hilariously, it actually starts with C-3PO and R2-D2 just chattering about it. Uh (laughs) And then, like, all this fighting is happening around them. Um, And they just kind of blithely move through this scene. Um, But anyway, so they come across, or 
C-3PO, really, I guess, comes across Princess Leia giving something to R2-D2. And then R2-D2 says to C-3PO, I have this information. We need to go find Obi-Wan Kenobi and give him this information. He does this in a series of bleeps and bloops and stuff. So they leave the ship in a pod, land on the planet. Some shenanigans happen that are actually not plot relevant. (laughs) Um, R2-D2 and C-3PO are bought by Luke Skywalker. Um, And R2 keeps saying, I need to get this information. I'm looking for Obi-Wan Kenobi. I'm looking for Obi-Wan Kenobi. And Luke's like, oh, hey, I know a Ben Kenobi. Maybe it's the same guy. So they go out to the desert to find Obi-Wan Kenobi, who I guess people kind of now think of as this eccentric old hermit um, Mm -hmm. kind of living in the desert. And, of course, Obi-Wan Kenobi is your standard, like, wise mentor, wizard mm-hmm. figure. I mean, there's a bazillion of those. Gandalf, Dumbledore, you name them, they're there. Um, and so they find Ben. R2 plays the message, which is Princess Leia explaining that Obi-Wan Kenobi used to be a general in the Clone Wars that mm-hmm. happened previous to this story, um, and that she needs his help to get the information information on the droid on R2 to a rebel base. Um, and of course, Obi-Wan's on, on board. And then you have Luke making his first decision. Kind of, right? You yeah. have, you know, Obi-Wan's like, well, you know, you can come with me. You can stay. And Luke initially refuses the call. He says, I have to stay. Um, I have to go back. I have a life here on this planet, and I can't leave my family behind. They go back to his his aunt and uncle's house, and they have been slaughtered by the Empire. So, basically, now Luke has nowhere else to go but to, to follow Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, so then, now they're looking for a way to get off Tatooine and find the rebel base, which leads them to Han Solo. Who's who they hire because he supposedly has a really fast ship. Now the whole mechanics of, of time and travel eh, kind of hand wavy, but whatever we can go with it. <laughs> um, so you have this kind of first setup. Han has basically a bounty on his head. He skipped out on what he owes a crime lord. Um, so that's kind of his setup as opposed to, to Luke. Um, and, um, so they get on the ship and they are traveling to Alderaan, which is actually, it's not the rebel base. Sorry. That's the, they were looking for, they were looking for Alderaan, which was Leia's home planet. Um, so they take the ship to Alderaan, but when they get there, they realize they find that the empire has destroyed it. Um, then they are actually captured. That's right. That's right. I forgot they like blow it up. Don't they? Yes. <laughs> oh, man. It doesn't play around, this movie. No, the stakes are pretty high. I mean, when Luke's aunt and uncle get killed, it's pretty rough. You know, it's not like, you know, it's not like they're killed off screen. You see their charred bodies smoking away in the flaming ruins of their home. Um, 
But yeah, they blew up the planet. I did skip over that because there's this whole scene where they are tr- basically torturing Leia for information. Mm-hmm. Um, the implications that they've initially subjected her to physical torture or and then psychological torture. And this kind of last bit of... This last gambit they're trying to use against her is... So we have this giant Death Star. That's what they call it, a Death Star, with enough firepower, enough firepower to destroy an entire planet. And if you don't give us the information of where the rebel base is hidden, we're going to destroy this planet. And of course, Alderaan is Leia's homeworld, and obviously she doesn't want to destroy a planet, so she gives them false information, basically. And then they go ahead and blow up the planet anyway. Yeah, I remember watching that for the first time, and I'm pretty sure in my live tweet, I was like, oh my god, they <laughs> like blew up her entire planet in front of and they, she sees it, you know, because they're in front of a an open window on the ship or whatever, and she can see the planet disintegrate behind her. So, yeah. Oh, it's dark stuff. It is. But I think this shows kind of how great Leia is. She's not... Mm-hmm. Some Obviously, not that it's great her planet gets destroyed. <laughs> no. Um, but she's somebody who's clever, because later you find out, you know... You know, she seems to capitulate. She gives them the name of a planet where their rebel base is located. And you find out later that she gave them, she did give them the location of a rebel base, but an old one that's been abandoned, right? So she's clever. She's, you know, you know, she's not this damsel in distress that desperately needs to be rescued. Um, She's holding her own, even though she does get rescued. But it's not like, Uh oh, no, I'm waiting for my prince to come rescue me. Um, also that her, she's got some great snappy dialogue in this movie that Uh I really love. (laughs) Carrie Fisher is wonderful. Um, a lot of zingers in this movie. Um, but I, I think that's what's so great about her. She's shown to be competent and her dialogue also matches that competence and gives her character. Um, you know, when she meets... Grand Moff Tarkin. He's like, I reckon that is your foul stench when I was brought on board. <laughs> Just really wonderful, kind of, it shows her strength of character. You know, she's feisty uh-huh. and she's resistant. So, so back to Han and Luke and Obi-Wan arriving at uh-huh. Alderaan. And they discover, wait a minute, Alderaan's no longer here. Um, then they discover what they think is a very small moon, <laughs> but that's no moon. It's a star, you know, starship, basically. Um, they're caught in its tractor beam, and so they're captured. Um, they're on the ship, and they're trying to find a way out. Uh, Obi-Wan says, I'm going to go and try and disable the tractor beam, and they discover Princess Leia is on the ship, and so last minute they decide to switch their plans to go rescue her as opposed to just straight up escaping. Uh-huh. Um, and of course Han is initially resistant. Doesn't um, he say, isn't there a line, uh, we might not be there yet, but isn't there a line where he's like, I'm Luke Skywalker and I'm here to rescue you. <laughs> yes, that's when he goes and that's when, when he goes to find adorable. Leia. adorable. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I know that was probably jumping up ahead a little bit, but... A little bit. I mean, he and Luke and Han do argue a little bit about whether or not to go rescue Leia. 
because mm-hmm. Han being selfish and self-centered yeah. basically is like, nope, I'm not care? putting my neck on the line for some, some, this, this lady, yeah, yeah, for no. this rebel cause I don't believe in. And so Luke, of course, having gotten a read on Han says, she's rich. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then Han's response is, how rich? Yeah. <laughs> and Luke's response is, well, more than you can imagine. He's like, I don't know, kid, I can imagine quite a lot. <laughs> um, but so his greed has won out, and so they both decide to go rescue Princess Leia. Mm-hmm. Um, and they discover where she's held. They formulate this plan where they dress up as stormtroopers. Um, and pretend that Chewbacca, who is Han's co-pilot, um, is a prisoner, and they're taking there's a prisoner transfer, and they're transferring him to the cell block that Princess Leia is hidden. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, that's the scene where Luke yeah. goes to go look for her, and actually she says first, "Aren't you a little short to be a stormtrooper?" <laughs> She's so great. She's so great. <laughs> that whole that whole rescue scene is great for multiple reasons. Um, because so, you know, while Luke has gone to get Leia out of her cell, Han is trying to, because they, you know, basically broken into this, this cell block and Han is trying to kind of hold off the authorities. And there's this great scene where um, whatever, whoever the boss is or supervisor is, like, calms into the room. He's like, what's going on there? Uh, <laughs> it's so great. He's like, <laughs> what does he say? He's like, we're, we're doing fine. How are you? It, it's all fine here. Uh, <laughs> how are you? <laughs> They're like, who is it? And then his response is just shoot the apparatus. It's boring conversation anyway. Um, so they're discovered, and so they're kind of in the middle of a firefight. And they're trapped. And so Princess Leia comes up to the solution that they'll get out via the garbage chute. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they get into the garbage chute. They discover that they're in the trash com- compactor. The Empire discovers they're in the trash compactor um, and starts to basically compact them together. Um, and they're able to communicate to the droids to, to stop this from happening and escape. Um, mm-hmm. While this is all going on, Obi-Wan is sneaking around the Death Star to whatever control room is controlling the tractor beam to disable it to allow them to escape. And he he does so. He's successful in doing so. Um, and then, of course, comes across Darth Vader. We haven't really discussed Darth Vader yet as uh-huh. a villain. Um, but he's this great, wonderful, menacing presence and it actually is established earlier in the film that there is a connection between Obi-Wan and Darth Vader. Or specifically, there is a connection between Darth Vader and Luke's father. Uh-huh. Um, because Darth Vader is sort of famous throughout the entire empire, and everyone knows his name. Um, and Luke has this idea, or this story of his father, who used to be a, a Jedi um, and a general, and he was a hero in, in Luke's mind. And what Obi-Wan tells him is that Darth Vader killed your father. So uh-huh. that's kind of the connection we have. Um, so 
Darth Vader comes across Obi-Wan and they, we have this duel. And we find out that Darth Vader was once a pupil of Obi-Wan's. Uh-huh. And so then we have this this big duel that's going on wherein Darth Vader kills Obi-Wan Kenobi. Or Obi-Wan allows himself to be killed <laughs> by Darth <Yeah>. Vader. <laughs> um, Luke witnesses this, but it's too late to do anything and they have to get on the ship and escape. And then uh-huh. the last act of this movie is essentially now they have all this information and they're, which is a way, a weakness in the Death Star that they've just escaped from. And so now they're forming a plan of attack to go destroy it. So, which they, of course, they are successful in doing so. That's kind of your very basic overview slash plot of Star Wars. Uh-huh. So let's talk a little bit about structure. Because uh-huh. it's actually fairly easy to do in this movie. You have, I would say, pretty clear acts defined a three-act structure, Act 1, Act 2, and Act 3. And I think you have pretty clear goals and stakes for each act. Which is Act 1, find Obi-Wan Kenobi. Act 2, uh-huh. rescue Princess Leia. Act 3, destroy the Death Star. Uh-huh. So... The storytelling is pretty tight in that way that you have, you know, it, is, it doesn't really meander so much except for that interlude in the beginning with the, dwar- with the droids. <laughs> um, yeah. Aside from that, you kind of have a pretty clear forward momentum in this movie with a very clear picture of what, e- what your protagonists need to accomplish in order to move to the next stage of the story. Um, and there's a lot at stake what what's so wonderful i think in this movie is that you have what the heroes need but you have the ever-present threat of the empire over their heads even if we're not in the midst of them as we are in the second act Mm -hmm. but they're the ones chasing after leia in the first act they're the ones chasing after the droids they're the ones that kill luke's aunt and uncle um so that gives you a sense of tension so we have a very clear goal for this for each act of the movie and clear obstacles or threats that are driving the story forward um so let's talk about dialogue in this movie what did you think about it i think it kind of runs the gamut i mean we get lines like I'm Luke Skywalker and I'm here to rescue you. And then we also get, you know, some of Leia's zingers and, you know, some of Han's dialogue is really great too. So I, and, and some of that I think is, you know, just up to the characters themselves. Luke is obviously not going to have snappy bantery dialogue because that's not the type of character that he is. Um, You know, so for, so in some cases we have to look at it, just as being true to character, uh, in that way. Um, you know, I, I don't know that I can separate out the dialogue because so much of it is, I knew so much of it before I ever saw the movie. Um, you know, when I was doing my live tweets, I was keeping a running tally of every time they said a line in the movie that I knew word for word, because so much of this dialogue is iconic and is quoted and 
uh, parodied and parroted in other media over and over and over and has just become part of our general social lexicon that it it you know has its own life beyond the movie itself and so for me i guess i wasn't really considering the dialogue in terms of craft in that way i actually think the dialogue is pretty great and not yeah. because it's excellently written you know, it's not poetry. It's not going to be Peter Schaefer or Tom Stoppard. Um, but it does exactly what the dialogue does that I think is great is it shows you exactly who each of those characters are. You mm-hmm. picked out, I'm Luke Skywalker and I'm here to rescue you. <laughs> Which, coupled with it's the a delivery. Luke line. Yeah, and yeah. also coupled with the delivery shows you exactly who he is. He's eager. He's idealistic. Earnest. And earnest. Yeah. Yes. Um, and Leia's response, you know, aren't you a little short for a, a stormtrooper storm or whatever is, you know, perfect for her. So, yeah, I think the dialogue really suits each individual character. It furthers the character development, the way that they speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, my favorite line of Leia's is, get in the shoot, flyboy. <laughs> What I really love about Han and Leia in particular is they have this kind of screwball comedy mm-hmm. dynamic that I think really works for their two their two archetypes, right? He's the, the rogue, right? And she is... Basically, she's um, kind of like your status woman. She's a woman of high status. And yeah. he's the lowly rogue. And they have this kind of really wonderful dialogue and banter that go back and forth. Um, the other places where I think the dialogue is quite funny and effective is actually between the droids, mm-hmm. C-3PO and r 2 which we didn't actually talk about their characterization, but I would argue that you can give them characterization. Um, C-3PO being the humanoid droid, humanoid droid is kind of this fussy butler. <laughs> yeah. He's very prim and very, yeah. Um, you know, always kind of, th- we should do this, we should do that. He's kind of this fuss, I always call him Fussy Butler. Um, and then there's R2-D2, who doesn't speak in English, but we always kind of know what he's saying mm-hmm. because of how other people react to him. And this specifically how C-3PO talks to him. And I think this is also really good dialogue writing because it's not like C-3PO is constantly saying, well, he said this, right? R2-D2 right, said this. He's not translating for either the audience or the other characters. He's just responding organically to the things that R2-D2 says. And through that organic response, we can get the context of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And, the char- and they're so wonderfully characterized, I think, through dialogue too, because one of one of the fir- one of the lines that C three PO says when they first crash land on the desert is, "We seem to be made to suffer. It's our lot in life." <laughs> um, and that one line shows you exactly what kind of character C three PO is. You know. Uh huh. So I would argue that, yes, there are parts of this, parts of the writing in terms of the dialogue that's super clunky. You know, any of the time there's an exposition dump, it's going Uh. to be clunky. 
the whole scene where they're briefing each other in the war room about what the the weaknesses of the Death Star. It's clunky, right? You've got this guy who's just basically laying out to you what what's going to happen in the next twenty minutes of this film. Um, and it, you know, it's kind of hokey, like all the stuff about the Force, kind of ho- hokey. You know, like it. Let, let's also talk about the Force <laughs> here. Okay, it's essentially magic. Mm-hmm. And we've seen the Force be able to cloud the minds of people. Yep. You know, these aren't the droids you're looking for. Mm-hmm. We've seen the Force be able to move things. Um, so there are kind of scenes where Obi-Wan is skulking around the, the Death Star and kind of, like, gesturing and kind of levers move up and down and things like that. We have seen the force be give Luke kind of an extra sensory dimension beyond just sight. Mm-hmm. Um we have seen Obi we've seen Obi-Wan sense the destruction of of Alderaan. It's as if if it's as if a, a million great disturbance in the force. That's a line given to to Darth Vader, but yeah, um, it's 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 a, it's, a, it's as if a million voices cried out in anguish and were suddenly silenced. Mm. That's when he uh-huh. senses the death. So you kind of have this mystical thing that connects everybody together, and uh-huh. the Jedi, who are wizards space wizards we're just gonna go with space (laughs) wizards for now we get more into the jedi later but they're they're yeah space wizards um space magicians (laughs) yeah there you go um the jedi are practitioners of the force they use the force the philosopher behind the force is very very muddled and fuzzy and people talk about it as if it's a religion Mm -hmm. um Han says, hokey, hokey religions is no mass for a good blaster at your side, kid. Um, again, really wonderful line that shows you exactly what kind of character Han is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have Darth Vader, who is also a practitioner of the Force. And this is when we're kind of introduced to, I don't think it's explicitly named in this movie, the dark side of the Force. Uh-uh. Um, but we see him use the force in negative ways. Like the, one of the first scenes we see Darth Vader in, he's choking, you know, he's choking someone. Mm. The force choke, you know, from the distance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we'll come back to that one <laughs> in other movies. <laughs> um, so what, what do you think of the force as this kind of mystical vehicle in the movie? I do remember, and I think it was more so as the movies went on, but I do remember kind of questioning, like, what are, what are the rules of the force? <laughs> like, what, how exactly does this work? Um, and people who know me, uh, or who listen to me discuss other fictional properties will know that I can somehow, I, I can sometimes get hung up on the, like, how does this work aspect of things. And while it did cross my mind, in general, I was willing to just accept it. And I don't know if that is because, again, I'm coming to this so late and the force has been a part of 
you know, my just pop culture general knowledge for so long that I didn't really need to know how it worked. Um, if I was just more willing to kind of shrug and go, okay, and go along with it. I do remember questioning it, um, I'm pretty sure in my live tweet I had a couple tweets about, like, okay, now the Force can apparently do this. Um, it does seem a little... It, it, it seems a very convenient writer's device. Like, if you need something to happen, you can just, you know, oh, the Force will take care of that. Um, and so that, you know, seems like a convenient tool to have in the writer's room. But for all the questioning and, and for all that, I was... I was not as bothered by it as I have been by some other things in other stories. I think the reason it doesn't bother me in this movie, it's it's hand-wavy, to say the least, uh-huh. right? Yeah. The force is very hand-wavy, both literally and metaphorically. <laughs> <laughs> but it functions as a really great coming-of-age device for Luke, because the sort of lessons that Luke is getting from the Force is to, quote, trust your feelings, right? That whole scene where he's training with um, Obi-Wan on the Millennium Falcon, and he puts that helmet with the blaster shield down, and Luke's trying to defend himself from this, like, little ball that's, like, moving around and shooting laser blasts at him. Um, So this concept of that, like, extrasensory dimension, um, and kind of comes back at the very end when, you know, they're making those that run at the little exhaust pipe that they're, they're all trying to sh- shoot pro- proton blasters into this exhaust pipe to blow up the Death Star, and people keep missing. Um, and, you know, they're all relying on computers. So 70s looking. <laughs> but they're all relying on these computers to help them aim. Um, and Luke keeps hearing to let go to trust the force and basically what that is is telling him to trust himself right Mm -hmm. and so when he does trust himself and in the force which is really a big metaphor for his coming of age is when they succeed so the force has an emotional point to this movie it's not just there Mm because it's cool you know like it's not the big MacGuffin of this movie there's no magical object or anything like that it's never really even used as anything but a tool. When you see the Force in action, it's used like any other weapon, basically, right? You have a gun, you're going to shoot it. If you have the ability to cloud minds of people, then you would use it. So I think for that reason, in this movie, the, the use of the Force is, is successful. Um, and also it has some roots in Eastern philosophy, this idea of interconnectedness which is essentially what creates the force. Like, everyone's life force, essentially, creates this idea of the force. Right. Um, so, like, so we can accept that because it's not, like, a magic system that George Lucas pulled wholesale out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's so successful about the world building in Star Wars is because it's just familiar enough for us to be able to fill in most of what's around the edges, right? Um, so yeah, I did not have a problem with the Force in the original trilogy, really. It didn't really bother me. We'll get to my problems with the Force later in the prequel trilogy. Um, but overall, I think 
I think that's why it's successful. Because the force is thematically tied to this movie. So, I would say we've covered most of Star Wars. I think structure, dialogue, character. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you can think of? I think those are the main the main things. I think it's pretty well paced. Um, you know, we're kind of talking about it from a story perspective, so we're not really talking about the actors or you know, necessarily any of the other elements that make a film. Uh, but I, I think it's a really great example of that iconic chosen one story, you know, that kind of coming of age, chosen one, all of those tropes. I think it, it takes those and, tells those stories pretty faithfully and uh, pretty well. Yeah, I would also agree that it's well-paced. I think it has a clear objective. Mm-hmm. It's not this Byzantine plot about politics or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we have very simple setup in the beginning. There's, you know, big bad empire and rebellion happening. And there's a vital piece of information that needs to get to the rebellion in order to defeat the big bad. Very Mm -hmm. simple, very clear, very straightforward stakes. And I don't think simple is bad. You know, there's often this kind of notion that the more complicated something is, the better it is. Uh But I would argue that that's not unilaterally the case. Uh-huh. And in the case of something like Star Wars, I would argue that simplicity does work in its favor. That its familiarity, you know, rooted in all sorts of other hero journeys and things like that, and all sorts of other previous fantasies, um, and even like little elements of the Western are thrown in there, thrown in there, uh, like everything in the cantina scene and everything like that. You know, all those familiar genre elements are there and it helps, it gives us an entry into this world. So I think the simplicity works for me. I think, Mm -hmm. so clear, direct plot, compelling characters that have good chemistry with each other, I should say, too. Because you can have really compelling characters, but if they don't play very well off of each other, then it doesn't always work. Um, But you have three main characters who have different personalities and fulfill different archetypes and they all jive and gel very well together. Um, and you know, the writing will never win like a Pulitzer or anything, but I actually think it's pretty Uh good. Uh huh. So from a story perspective, I think this is why star Wars is successful. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Agree. Yeah. Disagree. I do. I agree. I agree. You know, I, I mentioned before, but my, my expectations were not high when I watched these several months ago. And I really was, at least for these first three movies, uh, very, very pleasantly surprised. I think that they have aged incredibly well because in a lot of senses, this is a timeless story. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and like, sure, we may look at some of the, you know, the special effects or anything or be able to notice that in some senses it's dated, but the story doesn't feel dated. Mm-hmm. This feels like a story that has been told again and again and will continue to be 
told again and again. And that is one of the reasons why I think it really has become such a classic and such a cultural touchstone, because the story is just as relevant today as it was when it was made. All right. Awesome. Yeah. So let's move on to our other segments. Mm-hmm. Uh, what have you been reading? I have been reading. Yay. Finally. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm, I'm not super up to speed, but I did read uh, two books over the course of my vacation, which having gone from, you know, not reading anything for like three months or something was, was really nice. Uh, my gateway in was a reread, which was Touch of Power by Maria V. Snyder. Mm-hmm. And uh, listeners of this podcast will know that you and I are great fans of yes. Maria V. Snyder. <laughs> um, she has this, this is kind of her two main series. She has the study series and then the spinoff series from that, which is the glass series, but is kind of in the same universe with some of the same characters. And so that's kind of one universe that she has. And then this is the touch of power series or the healer series, I think it's called, which is set in an entirely different universe, a different world. Um, Maria V. Snyder has, I I don't want to say that her writing is formulaic, but she likes what she likes and she's good at what she's good Mm -hmm. at. And I think that a lot of the things that she does really well in the study series are back um, in the healer series. I really like this one too. I think if you haven't read this one, I think you would really like it as well, JJ. The romance is a very similar type of romance to the study series. It's got a great um, female protagonist. Um, so that was my my reread. I was just searching for something to read in the airport, and I was flipping through my Kindle on my phone to see what I already had on there. And I was like, oh, Maria V. Snyder is always, you know, always good for something. And I expected to just kind of read a chapter or two and then put it down and not finish, which is what has been happening to me for a few months. But I got sucked in and I read the whole thing, which was great. And then I figured, well, I finished one book. I might as well (laughs) try another one, right? Um, And a lot of my friends right now have been reading Scorpion Rule by Erin Bowe. Mm -hmm. And so I got that from the library, and I just finished that this morning, actually. Um, And I liked it, certainly enough to finish it, which, again, is a huge, huge accomplishment for me. Um, but yeah, I really, I really enjoyed it. It was really unexpected. I, based on the opening couple of chapters, I thought this was going to be a very specific formulaic type of book and that I knew exactly what was going to happen. And pretty much all of my expectations were upended and the book did not at all go in the direction that I thought it would. So I got really sucked in and engaged. So I, I mean, knock on wood, but I think my reading rep might be over. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> what about you? Um, I read, <laughs> um, I read something from Marie Lou, um, that I can't really talk about, I guess now. <laughs> no fair. <laughs> um, but I read it on vacation and it was really enjoyable and great. I think you guys will love this book. So I will talk about it more closer to its release date. (laughs) Um, But... Boo! (laughs) (laughs) Understood, of course. But Um, I've also read Glass Sword, which is the second Red Queen book by Victoria Aveyard. Uh Um, And 
you know, that was also pretty enjoyable, you know, continuation of the story that began in Red Queen. And I also read The Crowns Game by Evelyn Skye. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard of that one, but that's set in Imperial Russia, and it's about two enchanters who have to have a magic duel to the death, basically. Um, so, yeah, I really enjoyed that, too. And um, Nice. Right now, I am in the, like, a quarter of the way through a biography about Beethoven for research. Um, I actually, this book is really, really enjoyable, and, like, enjoyable for me, but that's because it's me, so, um, Mm -hmm. and I also got an arc of Pub Crawl's very own Stephanie Garber's Caraval, which I I am looking forward to, uh, reading and making my little comments for her, so, I, yeah, that's kind of a lot, and, you know, considering how recently I got off of my reading route as well, I think that's quite a bit of stuff to be reading, so... Mm-hmm. So, well, I mentioned it before, but are you working on anything? I um, have not been working on anything new necessarily, but I think we can finally announce what we have been working on for a very long time Yes, at this point, which is another podcast. <laughs> so you may have seen that um, on Twitter, uh, but we have been recording a podcast about Avatar The Last Airbender with another friend of ours named Mike, and it's called uh, Earth Kingdom Radio. It's on iTunes. It's on SoundCloud. It's just about everywhere uh, on Twitter at Earth Kingdom Pod. And we've been recording that since February. We were recording way ahead um, to help with editing and with other preparations that needed to happen, and it's finally launched. Mm-hmm. So that has been a lot of fun. Um, it just, I mean, just, just, just came out. So uh, it's been fun to see people begin to discover that. And I hope people like it. So if you're into Avatar The Last Airbender, or even if you're not, because I wasn't when I first started <laughs> this podcast. you sense maybe um, there's a theme coming up here. <laughs> <laughs> um, that I have yeah. to force Kelly into watching these really great fictional properties. It's true. It's true. it's a great it's a great um, side effect of our friendship is that I get exposed to all of these things that I'm really reluctant to uh, experience and my friends kind of drag me kicking and screaming and then later I have to thank them profusely for uh, for doing that so that's been a lot of fun I'm really excited about that um, that has kind of been taking up a lot of my creative space lately. Um, my writing has kind of been shelved a little bit on the back burner because summers for us get really busy. And so we just were on vacation to visit my family. David, my husband is running a marathon, um, upstate. So we're actually taking a mini vacation up there so he can read or read. I'll be reading. He'll be running. (laughs) (laughs) I don't run, uh, but he's running a marathon. So we're taking a long weekend trip up North and then we have the family cabin. So we do lots of travel in the summer. So, um, it's going to be a little bit harder to squeeze some writing time in, but I am still hoping to get to work on that. But what about you? What are you working on? Well, I had a phone call with my editor and agent discussing book two. Um, yeah, it was a really wonderful phone call, but I had to tell them, I was like, caveat, (laughs) the book you get may not contain anything that I'm talking about now. Hashtag pants are problems. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
So I I have, I don't know if I've mentioned this. So when I sold book two, I'd actually had about 10,000 words of it written. But I wrote those 10,000 words while I was on submission with Winter Song. Mm-hmm. So, and of course, they say not to do that, right? You know, don't write a mm-hmm. sequel to a book unless the first book is sold. Otherwise, what's the point, right? Right. Um, so after about 10,000 words, I kind of stopped writing the story. But there was, you know, I, I kind of wanted to, to get more of the story down while I thought about it. <clears throat> but since that point, I haven't looked at these words in like two years. So I looked at it again, and it's not terrible, which is good. <laughs> but I actually haven't been drafting yet, because, as you can tell, I'm, I'm re- reading this biography of Beethoven because the books are s- set during his lifetime, basically. And, um, and, and it's about mu- music and Vienna and composing and things like that. So I'm reading a biography about him because... Not necessarily because I'm interested in the life of Beethoven, although I am, and I already know a lot about his life anyway, so I don't need like all of that necessarily, but I need to know the culture and the details around him, hence uh-huh. why I'm reading this biography. Um, and it's it's been pretty good, I guess, giving me some of the, the flavor and the culture and the mood around Central Europe at this time. Um it, I kind of wish it was a little bit more dry and academic, like what the mechanics of publishing your music were, um, uh-huh. what the exact cost of this was. But I'm getting a little bit more you know, useful information, like how a musician at that time would make money, how much money they would make, approximately how much money it would cost to live in Vienna, all this sort of mundane stuff. But I really like research, though, so I can kind of go overboard with this sort of thing. <laughs> Uh, as Kelly well knows, which is mm-hmm. to pull me back from the research rabbit hole. Yep, step away from Google. <laughs> uh, but I just want to know. It's not even I like know. it's not even like I necessarily want to know this for my book, although I do. It's just I just want to know. Mm-hmm. Hashtag Ravenclaw. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that's kind of what I'm reading. I mean, it's. Is it my first work of nonfiction this year? I guess it is. So, yeah. Um, without the book I'm reading, not the book I'm writing. <laughs> uh-huh. So, uh, do you have any off-mini recommendations? Have you done? Seen? My daughter, who is two and no longer crying, <laughs> which is great. Uh, my daughter does not watch a ton of TV, but she does watch a little bit of TV. And she recently was exposed to My Little Pony Friendship is Magic. I love that show. And I had resisted the show for a long time because I know a lot of people love it. And I was a child in the 80s, and so I remember the original My Little Pony. And I, I haven't seen it since it originally you know, aired. Um but I had deep love for it and, you know, all the nostalgia associated with it. And I, I just, you know, was like, My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic is just not for me. I'm not the audience for it. You know, it's just taking this property that I loved as a child and rebooting it. And that's fine, but I don't have any interest in watching it. And I'd heard great things, but it still didn't move me. 
But when we were on vacation, um, someone was flipping through channels on TV and my daughter had just woken up from a nap and we flipped through channels and my little pony was on and she was instantly, instantly, uh, transfixed by it. And so one of the places that she always gets to watch TV is on the airport and the plane back home. So we bought some episodes off iTunes and loaded them onto the iPad so that she could watch them on the plane. And I've obviously been watching them with her and they're great. Yeah. I, I really like that show. I really like they're that show. Really, They really are just great. And I wasn't <laughs> expecting that at all. And again, are you saying you know, a common theme here? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it makes it sound like I go through life just hating everything and like, that's not true, but, <laughs> but I, I do tend to have preconceived notions about things and I am willing, obviously to change my mind and I'm open, you know, <laughs> I'm open to being changed by my experiences, you know, but, um, I do form a lot of, um, opinions based on very little actual information when it comes to things like Hashtag children's television shows. <laughs> <laughs> hush you, hush. Um, so yeah, so it has been delightful. I'm having a little bit of an existential crisis as I can't determine which pony I most identify with or which pony most represents me. So that's been hard. <laughs> I I think I know who my daughter's favorite is because it's the only one whose name she knows right now. She's only seen a few episodes, but she talks about Pinkie Pie constantly. Yeah. So I think, <laughs> I think Pinkie Pie is my daughter's favorite. Uh, but I have not yet figured out who the pony that best represents me. So I'm still working on that, but it, it has truly been, you know, I, I will admit it. It has been a delightful little show. And from what I hear from other friends who have gone back to watch the original, um, unsurprisingly, the original was made in the eighties and, and perhaps was not, um, didn't have the best messaging for little girls in the entire world. And I have not gone back to watch the originals, but I'm, I'm willing to believe their, um, you know, their horrified realization. So it sounds like this one is, I love this one. This one's great. I have no complaints about any of the messaging in it whatsoever. And it's just charming. So yeah. Well, the original, my little pony was only created to sell toys. Well, yes. Like Transformers <laughs> was only ever created to sell toys. Like G.I. Joe. Everything, everything from the 80s was created to sell toys. Yes. Every TV show that I grew up on was 100% a marketing strategy. Absolutely. And what I think is so great about My Little Pony Friendship is Magic is that it starts with the characters mm-hmm. first and then builds stories around them. So um, I really like My Little Pony um, I like the showrunner. She used to work on Powerpuff Girls, I think. She's uh-huh. been an animator for them. So, And I another show that I actually really loved. Um, so uh, the other thing is, like, My Little Pony kind of scratches for me what I call the Sailor Moon itch. Uh. Because Sailor Moon is a TV show about a bunch of girls who are friends with each other. And work Uh together, and they have magical powers, right? Um, Like some of the ponies do. And they're all kind of different archetypal 
you know, whatever, they represent different types of girls and they all work together and they solve problems and defeat the big bad. And for me, when I first watched My Little Pony, I was like, oh, it's like, it really does. It scratched that Sailor Moon itch in me. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, I, I definitely love that show. <laughs> Absolutely. People have told me I'm like Twilight Sparkle. Mm-hmm. But I actually think I identify with Rarity, so. <laughs> I love Rarity. I do too. <laughs> Yeah, when I try to figure out who my pony is, I, all I can think of is Twilight Sparkle. But she is kind of just the everyman pony. You know, she's the one who first comes to Ponyville. And the others are all so, like, their their defining characteristics are so prominent. Mm-hmm. And hers is just kind of like, I'm smart and I'm, you know, the protagonist (laughs) i'm the everyman pony i'm the every pony every pony right they are really dedicated in that show about those ponies words (laughs) like some pony or you know whatever instead of somebody or someone or whatever they're they're really dedicated it's kind of become a game for me to see if they're ever going to slip up and so far they have not I i don't think they do i don't think they do but yeah, they're very dedicated to that. <laughs> Definitely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, that is my other media. What about you? Um, does this entire city count? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's hear about your vacation. Oh, it was fantastic. Uh, Mark and I went to New Orleans for a vacation, and neither of us had been, so... Um, it, it it's hard to describe exactly. It's a really cool city with a lot of history and character to it. Um, but even if you don't necessarily care about that, because I know some people don't, it has really great food. Oh. <laughs> so, if for nothing else, I recommend y'all go to New Orleans for food, because it was great. Um, but we, we did a lot of things there. We did a ghost tour of the French Quarter, we did Bourbon Street. We went to the World War II Museum. Uh, we went to the aquarium and the zoo there. Um, and other times we... And I went to the cemeteries because, you know, goth. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and um, just really had a really lovely time. And um, aside from that, the only other media I've been consuming is I just rewatched Deadpool with the commentary track on. And that was highly enjoyable as well. Nice. But yeah, not not a ton of other media right now, mostly because my evenings I come home and I'm reading for research for for Uh writing, so. All right. That is all for this week. Next week we'll be talking about the second installment in Star Wars, which is The Empire Strikes Back. So, as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at PubCrawlBlog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at PublishingCrawl. You can follow me, Kelly, at BookishChick on Twitter or Instagram. 
And you can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, on, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, the author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thank you guys so much for listening. Bye. Bye.